We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Sox Machine Live. It is our first mid-season podcast of the 2022 season. I am your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night, April 14, 2022, as we bring you this episode that you can listen to wherever you subscribe to podcasts or also watch on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash socks machine, which we'll be adding some graphics that help us as far as with the dialogue. You can pair a visual with our analysis breakdown of what happened with the Chicago White Sox against the Seattle Mariners. So if you haven't watched any of the socks machine podcasts, you can do so on youtube.com slash socks machine. The Chicago White Sox just finished their first home series of the 2022 season against the Seattle Mariners, and it was a good result. They won two out of three. It was a picture-perfect home-opening weather day, but the weather got wild in game two with all of the rain that was falling on the field. And after the rain on Wednesday, let's bring in the wind on Thursday with gusts up to 45 miles per hour, and we just saw some really weird things going on especially with the infield pop flies that worked to the benefit of the White Sox. That's how they scored the one run, but ultimately they lost game three of the series and snapping their four game winning streak. Uh, However, the Chicago White Sox are four and two. And in this episode, we're going to be recapping that White Sox Mariners series. Look ahead to the weekend series against the Tampa Bay Rays this upcoming weekend, which also includes the Jackie Robinson day on Friday. And since everyone (coughs) about this subject will chime in whether or not to let your starting pitcher go for a perfect game glory at the end of the show. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, and he is toughing it out, folks. It is Jim Margulis. Hello, Jim. It's just six games, but the injuries continue to pile up for the White Sox, and yet they are four and two. And tied for first place in the American League Central. I would say when you consider everything, that's a good start for the White Sox. Yeah, I I think so. Uh, Basically, it's only six games. First six games, the number of bodies the White Sox have lost for either 
the injured list, like with Lucas Giolito and AJ Pollock or short-term bruises, hopefully like uh, Eloy Jimenez, um, you know, they could have easily gone two and four and said, well, you know, it's a rocky start. We've had to deal with some injuries, some hardships. Every team will have to do the same. We're getting ours out of the way early, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so four and two, given those st- stakes, given that everybody did not play perfectly, given that they, uh, um, you know, they had some players step up and deliver. They had some players disappoint, um, but they had enough talent uh, on hand with both uh, series to be able to provide a cushion to where like if Liam Hendricks is still a little bit shaky early on, or if, you know, Larry Garcia is just kind of screwing up everything right now, they can still overcome that by and large. Yeah. I, the Lurie Garcia discourse in this episode is going to be held to a minimum folks, because it's all about good vibes in this episode. And Lurie Garcia is uh, going to send you down to a pitfall of despair real quick. If you want to talk about his play. So that's our Lurie Garcia breakdown of the first six games of that's the 2022 season. And, you know, with the White Sox winning the series, I thought this was a really good series win, Jim, because Mm -hmm. overall, when you look at Seattle, I mean, Matt Brash, that kid can pitch. And in the home opener, it's always crazy when you have more than 35,000 people at Guarantee Rate Field. And as I was weaving through the crowd to get nachos for my fiance, Kim, who wanted nachos, I ran into his high school coach and his cousin that were at the game. Cause they're the only Mariners fans wearing brash jerseys. Mm. And I asked his high school coach, how hard did he throw for you? And he said, 80. Mm. <laughs> and I asked him, where did 99 come from? And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, I wish he had that when he was pitching for me, we would have won more games. Uh, so it was great to see. And, you know, Matt brash had a terrific home day, de- uh, his major league debut against the white Sox, but that got foiled by Luis Robert. And we're going to talk about Luis Robert in a moment, but then the white Sox beat Robbie Ray, which I thought they had a terrific team hitting strategy against Ray, even though all the rain that was falling down on both teams and Logan Gilbert, that dude can pitch as well. He is an excellent pitcher. The Seattle Mariners have really good pitching and for the white Sox to deal with all the injuries that they've got and who they threw out pitching in this series to come out winning this series two out of three, Jim, I think is a really good result. We did see a little bit of, you know, the white Sox tendency to hit lefties pretty well and struggle against righties, but given that it's only six games and given that the white Sox set a uh, season high in strikeouts and that strikeout total is only nine. Mm -hmm. I I think you do have to forgive some struggles. I think, you know, it's a case where, you know, they're, they are a little bit shorthanded offensively against lefties. Like that's when you'd want Yohan Makata in the lineup. That's when you'd want, uh, you know, Larry Garcia theoretically providing some relief rather than being this everyday. And I know we're going into a second Larry minute here, but uh, just a case where like, you know, when he's not firing, that's another lefty bat that isn't quite working. Uh, Gavin Sheets seems like his timing is a little off. Like watching Gilbert pitch, like I thought he did a great job of working that fastball in on righties and that made his slider more dangerous going away. And like he gave Jose Abreu fits. Um, but I thought with sheets of the plate, he made some mistakes. Like the, the, he hung some sliders, uh, the fastball command wasn't there and Sheets just didn't have the timing. He had that broken bat single in the first time up, which was good, you know, just, you know, more or less on time and strong enough to get the ball to center field. But the second at bat, 
there were some sliders hung. And I thought like, oh, if he just gets in the air to left field, just uh, kind of uh, like a three-quarter swing, you know, just to poke it in the bullpen, given the way the wind was blowing. But he just couldn't get the barrel on whatever Gilbert was throwing. So I think when he's not there, when A.J. Pollock, who's got the ability to hit righties, isn't in the lineup, I think they're a bit shorthanded. So you did see a bit of that old-fashioned tendency of just a good righty throwing well. White Sox have a hard time stringing together uh, decent at-bats. But it was also just a good job pitching. And then, you know, they brought and bring in uh, Andres uh, Munoz, who's throwing 102.8 and locating sliders back door and front door. Uh, Just, yeah, it's a case where uh, I'm, I'm glad he's not in the division. He's got electric stuff. Again, the Seattle Mariners, they can pitch. Offensively, you know, they're working on things. And I th- once they find their rhythm, that is a really good combination that they've got. And again, they're someone that I think can win the American League West and overtake the Houston Astros and be a playoff team in 2022 and finally snap that playoff streak. Uh, drought that they have had since 2001. I mentioned Luis Robert, and we always have our golden cog of the series, the player of the series for the Chicago White Sox, which is voted upon by our followers on Twitter, which you can follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. And the golden cog of this series is Luis Robert, Jim. Even though he only had two hits in this series, he went two for 11. Both of those hits were home runs. He stole two bases on the home opener. And I think that's how he won this uh, player of the series award against the Mariners because that home debut, that, that home opener, he almost won that game by himself. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like he factored in both runs by himself, or at least the, the second and third runs, which proved to be both needed uh, you know, with the homer and then with the uh, two stolen bases. Uh, you know, we had discussed before the season, whether Robert would be hundred percent with his legs and be as aggressive as he was before the hip injury. And sure seems that way. Also made that nice leaping catch in front of the wall. <laughs> I think, you know, part of the Mariners offensive struggles might be April related or wind related or rain related like Jesse Winker, you know, probably was a combined five feet away from having a much different looking series on a stat line and having a much different start to his season. So the White Sox lucked out a little bit there in terms of contact, but the White Sox did play the kind of defense uh, that wins close games in, in the first two. And Robert was a big part of that as well. Yeah. And he's having a very good start to the 2022 season, making some of us that have said that he's going to be the 2022 American league MVP look smart. My gosh, though, Jim, Jose Ramirez of Cleveland needs to calm down. Ramirez already has 14 RBIs mm. this season. He's in, in the first six games for Cleveland. He's already at 0.9 war. And I looked up Luis Robert and he was at 0.4. And I'm thinking, that's awesome. You're already four tenths of a win six games in the season. Jose Ramirez is almost already at a full win above replacement with the way that he's starting this season. So Ramirez needs to calm down, but Luis Robert is having a terrific start to the season and he wins the golden cog for the series against the Seattle Mariners for the white Sox winning this series. Maybe it's a good omen. And that's a good place to start for this topic. When talking about the starting pitching, Vince Velasquez starting the home opener, not ideal and definitely not planned for the Chicago white Sox. And then Dallas Keuchel following up against Robbie Ray. I think a lot of White Sox fans were just resigned to the fact that 
if the White Sox can't hit Ray, they're going to lose this game against Seattle. And thankfully, the White Sox were able to hit Ray. But I thought Keiko pitched really well. And from my perspective at the home, at the home opener, being in the stands, unfortunately, the White Sox were dealing with scoreboard issues in the stadium, things not being updated. And when you have that many people in one place, Wi-Fi isn't that reliable. So it was really tough to bring up baseball savant or even MOB game day to track where you were in a bat and how many pitches were being thrown. But taking a look at Vince Velasquez, Jim, what was your review for his first start with the White Sox? I think you can look at it two ways. One is that, uh, you know, with this fastball being his primary pitch, like he didn't throw it as often as he sometimes does. Like he went to it in a whole assortment of pitches and you can look at it two ways. One is um, that he had, uh, you know, confidence in multiple pitches and he was able to mix up speeds and eye levels and so forth. The other way to look at it is that, oh, he's still looking for bread and butter. Like the fastball isn't as good as it used to be. And he's still searching for that go-to secondary pitch, the, whether it's the slider, whether it's the curve, whether it's the changeup, he's been searching for that as long as he's been in the league, basically. Like he had that nice rookie season, but then second year came around and you know, had some health issues and then had to be a little bit more of a fully formed pitcher and just wasn't able to make that step. So I didn't see anything in that regard uh, that made me think like, oh, you know, Ethan Katz has got him figured out. He's now a pitcher, but he was competitive with all his pitches. And I think in April when the ball's not carrying, when the wind is sometimes favorable and sometimes offenses aren't fully timed yet or, you know, fully stocked when it comes to you know injuries early in the season, that sometimes being competitive is good enough, especially if like somebody like Lucas Giolito might be coming back before uh, he might have to start answering for some of those doubts. The fastball. He only had one whiff in the game. He was able to get four called strikes. So his cold, his called strike whiff rate was decent, but not great. Is the fastball still electric enough? Not only that the White Sox could maybe count on him to be a spot starter, Jim, but later in the season, if the starting rotation is healthy, is the fastball good enough for him to be a reliable reliever? I don't quite see that. I think he's more of a long reliever. And if the White Sox rotation was fully stocked, if it was Giolito, Lynn, Cease, Keuchel, Kopech, and they're all pitching without restrictions, I really don't know. I guess we're seeing a little bit with Lopez getting some higher leverage short appearances versus the longer leaf work he was resigned to last year. But I guess that might be the difference is that Velasquez will be the mop-up guy, the three inning guy, and Lopez would be the one plus inning guy uh, in closer games. But they kind of seem cut from the same cloth to me, except Lopez is throwing harder and Lopez, you know, he's mm -hmm. able to get up to 98 sometimes. And Velasquez seems like he's topping out around 95. So I don't see a difference making pitch here that makes me think like, oh, he's going to be put him in shorter outings and he'll be uh, hitting 97 with movement. And he'll only have to throw like one breaking ball instead of two to see, uh, you won't have to give hitters multiple looks. So he doesn't have to worry about that. Like I don't see anything that automatically elevates him into more dominant in shorter outings. So I don't quite see it unless Ethan Katz has an idea and it's just not fully emerged yet, which you know could be the case. I, I don't want to say, I don't want to write him off completely because uh, sometimes a new pitching coach can provide a new idea, but for the time being, it is it does look like the old Velasquez who is of limited utility. And you mentioned it, but he was competitive. And again, 
thanks to Luis Roberts' outstanding catch, put the White Sox in a position to win that game. That's all you can ask for as a White Sox fan right now out of Vince Velasquez when he is making starts. Again, his performance against Seattle, four innings pitched, two hits allowed, one earned run, which was a home run, three walked to two strikeouts. Dallas Keuchel, he gave up the home run early, but after two innings, he had four strikeouts, Jim. And he finished the night, five innings pitched, six hits allowed, three earned runs allowed, the one home run. He didn't walk anyone. And he had five strikeouts in the night. And I have to say, that was the best that Dallas Keuchel has looked in a while. And for those that are watching the YouTube stream, we have the slide of his stat cast data against the Seattle Mariners. And last year, especially in the second half of the season, Jim, we talked about how terrible the cutter was for Dallas Keuchel. Lack of command. If he threw it in the middle of the zone, it got crushed. And against Seattle, he threw the cutter 24 times. He was able to get three whiffs on 17 swings and got four called strikes. So his called strike whiff rate was 29%, which is a pretty significant improvement for Dallas Keuchel. And he mixed in the changeup, and we saw more sinkers as well. What did you think about Dallas Keuchel? And do you think that this is the best that we've seen him in a while? Because I thought this was the best that we've seen him since early 2021, if not 2020. Yeah, I think with Keuchel, the key is the sinkers and change-ups uh, arm side and then the cutter glove side. Uh, that's kind of the the two things he needs to get the wider plate that he needs to thrive and the different eye levels, the different, uh, you know, ways to keep hitters off balance. We saw last year that, as you mentioned with the cutter being either poorly located or I should say poorly located in two ways, either missing over the middle of the plate or missing uh, just a lot of wide misses for lefties, useless pitches that aren't competitive. Uh, we saw, you know, a, a guy who had, you know, usually held lefties to like an under 600 OPS year after year uh, was even up with righties and lefties, 827 OPS a piece. And that's a guy, if he's not getting lefties out, uh, it's a case where like, okay, he's not really, you know, what does he do? And, and, and that's really a tough question uh, to ask a pitcher if you don't know the answer. And with the funny thing with Keuchel, though, is that they actually faced two lefties and they both got hits with a double. So the OPS against them for the season is 2,500 by lefties. But overall, <laughs> like if, if you just uh, take away those two at-bats and you just more or less look at the way he was throwing, he did have those two locations. He had the cutters uh, on the hands to righties and he had the change up sinkers down the way. And I think as long as he's doing that, like he'll pay the occasional price for mistake. Like his margin for error is smaller. And we saw that with the homer he gave up, but the other runs were, you know, manufactured slash cheap, like the doubles came around to score, but it was on a cheap infield single and just a, a little bit of dink and dunk there for the other two runs. And, you know, five innings, three runs, not a good ERA if he did that every single time, but if you could somehow say that Dallas Keuchel will give you five innings of three runs every time, I think fans more or less take that because it gets you more than halfway through the game. So it's a case where like you should be expected to do better, at least a little bit better, uh, occasionally going six innings from time to time, and I think his efficiency would have allowed him to pitch one more inning had he not had the early season restrictions, but a good enough start, I think, and showing the two things he needed to show. We'll see Velasquez again. He is a scheduled starter 
for Easter Sunday for the Chicago White Sox. White Sox against Tampa Bay. We'll talk about that more in our preview against the Tampa Bay Rays upcoming in the show. And then Dallas Keuchel is scheduled to start the Monday game against Cleveland as the White Sox go on the road for four in Cleveland next week before they head to Minneapolis for the weekend series, the first time the White Sox and Twins will play in 2022. But while we saw decent pitching from Vince Velasquez and Dallas Keuchel, uh, we have to talk about the defense. And for those watching on YouTube, I'm bringing up the picture of Adam Engel robbing a home run, another home run robbery by Adam Engel in his career. A phenomenal catch by Adam Engel in Wednesday's win in the rain. Luis Robert, we talked about his fantastic catch in the home opener. Aloy Jimenez also made a very good catch at the wall uh, in the home opener. Josh Harrison made a really nifty play uh, going through the mud of the infield to still get an out, uh, even though the the grounder was hit against the shift, or, or I should say away from the shift. Josh Harrison was able to make a phenomenal defensive play. Uh, Reese McGuire has been helping a great deal defensively as well, Jim, to start the season. So the question that I have here is, are the White Sox defense better than we think it is? I think it can be, or I think it depends on the situation, who's around, who's healthy. Um, you know, when they have Adam Angle and Luis Robert in two of the outfield spots and Angle's like an easy guy to start because AJ Pollock's hurt. Yeah. The defense is going to be upgraded. Josh Harrison, uh, you know, you know, Larry Garcia's struggles, notwithstanding. And that's the third. That's three minutes. times. Jim. Come on. Come <laughs> I mean, on. just like, you know, if, 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 you know, Harrison, if this defensive disparity between the two is going to be a persistent feature of this team and needs to be accounted for going forward, then Harrison would be the upgrade there. And if he's batting second, maybe Harrison is the full-time second baseman. Uh, and then Jake Berger's playing decent third base. We've seen Tim Anderson make strides. So there is the potential for like a really good defensive team, especially say if it is like lefty on the mound when he ha- when angle starting is a, a nice mm-hmm. idea and Josh Harrison starting is a nice idea or uh, if they have a lead and all of a sudden you can swap out, like you, you can put uh, Larry in left and have a, uh, you know, Garcia, Robert angle around the entire outfield. And all of a sudden that's pretty good, especially if Moncada comes back playing third. I, I think you just have the tendency with this team to have like embarrassing moments amid excellence, or you could have like left field could be kind of a hole just that, that sinks the team wide value. I think Grandal could be somebody who's very divisive, depending on what you know, whether you weigh what he does well or whether you weigh the things he does poorly, how you balance that out. I think that can be a little bit uh, of a debate. Uh, Abreu can be somebody who doesn't score well, but does a job well enough, especially when you see other first basemen play in his stead. You realize like, oh, Abreu would have scooped it out or Abreu would have made that throw. So I think there are enough strengths around this entire diamond to where you know, it should be an above average defensive team that maybe just has some really below average moments at times. And maybe mm. left field is an act of concern, but uh, I, I think maybe the, the guy who might have as much to say about it as anybody team wide is AJ Pollock. If he's an everyday player in her rights, uh, we saw him get stuck against the wall at Comerica playing that field for the first time. Like it'll be uh, something to see just how his athleticism uh 
balances out or overcomes or is outweighed by his inexperience in the corner and how the White Sox manage that? I think in late in game situations, if Aloy Jimenez, Jim, especially at home, is the final batter in the eighth inning and the White Sox have the lead. I'd like to see Pollock move over to left where he's played. He's got a lot more experience yeah. in left field compared to right field and Adam Engel going out to right field. So you have that Pollock, Robert and Engel outfield. I was not expecting this to be an average defensive team coming into the 2022. I think of the world of Luis Robert, I think he's got an opportunity to win the gold glove in center field. He's got stiff competition against Byron Buxton. But as we were entering the season, thinking it's going to be some type of combination of two first basemen and Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets in right field and Aloy Jimenez in left field, I was just waiting to see 30th in defensive ranks in the two corner outfield spots. Not quite sure what the range was of Josh Harrison, Yohan Makata out, Jake Berger's in. Okay, does Berger have the range to be a major league third baseman? And I have to say in the first six games of the season, I am pleasantly surprised on how well this team is playing defensively. And yes, there are some gaffes. And fourth time we mentioned him, Lurie Garcia is at the (laughs) center of those gaffes. But we have seen some game-changing defensive plays for the Chicago White Sox in the first six games of the season. And I hope this is a trend that continues because this could be the X factor of them being able to not just survive Jim, but thrive in light of all these injuries in the month of April, because if they can win this upcoming series against Tampa Bay, and that's going to be our next topic here. And on Monday Sox machine podcast, if we're talking about a six and three Chicago white Sox team winning their first three series of the season, without Lucas Giolito and Lance Lynn and Yohan Makata, uh, that would be remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. I mean, everybody right now within the White Sox, especially their coaching staff, Ethan Katz in the pitching front, and Frank Medicino, I think, is doing a lot better job with the hitters, getting everyone to stick to a team game plan, especially facing starting pitchers. I think everyone has been doing a very good job on the White Sox front and a big reason why they're currently four and two to start the series. Yeah, I think Adam Engel is the one guy we didn't know how to talk about before the season because of the offseason surgeries he had. He had the right. labrum issue. He had the you know, upper body, lower body issues the last couple of years. And, you know, with what he had shown at the plate around those injuries, like he's pretty much a perfect fourth outfielder because he can hit righties. He can, or he can hit lefties. He's hit righties better to the point where if he had to start for a month, you wouldn't hate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just more of a matter. Can his body withstand that kind of stress and to see him slowly get introduced to spring training during a shortened spring training, like, you know, that it would have been out of the question if he had to start the season in Charlotte after a, uh, uh, a stint on the injured list. So we just didn't really know how to talk about him, but it looks like he's playing without restrictions and, you know, as you mentioned with a catching me at the wall, which was really impressive just because like he had, you know, I think part of it was that he had all the time in the world to park on the warning track, but also like he just, the way he looked up in the rain and I, I was watching his eyes to see like if the rain would make him blink mm-hmm. and he didn't blink once. And, you know, part of it's slow motion. He had basically like 15 seconds of staring you know, based on how the <laughs> uh, camera work was being replayed, but just like, I was waiting to see like, what if a droplet got in his eye or something like that, or like just a, uh, you know, wayward, um, you know, just, uh, you know, just something on his eyelash. It makes him have to squint for a second. Does that throw off his concentration? But like he was locked on it and 
it was a, a fond memory to the last really ugly rebuilding year of 2018 when he had that week that kind of, uh, uh, you know, was three home run robberies in a week that was really mm-hmm. uh, great to see. And with Luis Robert not quite mastering the timing at the wall yet, and with left field being a bit of a mess right now with, uh, you know, Eloy and, and Vaughn trying to figure it out, like it was good to see that kind of uh, above average to excellent wall competence because I think like when you I'm thinking like uh previous defensive alignments like going from Diane Vicieto Melky Cabrera the fact that Cabrera could play a wall and could time leaps and could uh you know not get trapped was such a big difference even though they were both uh below average defenders like you know just Vicieto was abysmal whereas Cabrera was just like a uh a solidly below average but when it came to like the potential extra bases or home run robberies or all of a sudden like a three run swing, like Cabrera could occasionally pull those off. So I think having uh, angle skill there, I I think matters maybe a bit more in certain games and certain like leverage indexes and such than uh, maybe we really account for because it is such a rare play. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Well, the Chicago White Sox, again, winning the first two series of the season, and they are still at home for this weekend. It is going to be a packed guarantee rate field, especially Friday and Saturday games as the Tampa Bay Rays show up. And the Rays so far this season are 4-3, and three, and the Rays started out 3-0. and oh. Sweeping the Baltimore Orioles, who are terrible. Uh, But then the Rays lost three out of four against the Oakland Athletics. That was surprising. And it was a good performance by Oakland. A lot of runs scored in that series. Offensively for the Rays, got to keep an eye on Brandon Lau, who has three home runs already this season and six RBIs. G-Man Choi already has two homers and six RBIs. We're going to probably be talking about him more in a moment here. But Wander Franco is already 11 for 29 this season. That's a 379 batting average. The Rays pitching probables for this series are going to send Drew Rasmussen 
on Friday night and Saturday night. It is old enemy Jim, Corey Kluber, which I forgot that Corey Kluber signed with the Rays before watching games last week. We'll be making the start on Saturday and Sunday is to be determined for the Rays. So that's the Rays pitching probables. We'll get into the White Sox pitching probables in a moment. But Jim, I have to ask you, like I asked you in last episode, what makes Seattle so interesting? What makes Tampa Bay interesting to you? Uh, just their randomness and the guys who emerge uh, to play key roles for them. I think they just, you know, they're usually ahead of the curve when it comes to, we've seen with pitcher deployments, when when it comes to uh, platooning, when it comes to uh, variability with their way they they can uh, position their players around the infield and with how they deploy them up and down the lineup. They seem to be great at manufacturing relievers. Like that's something, you know, I was watching, you know, Munoz come up through 102 and, and thinking about like Zach Birdie, how the White Sox had put all that draft capital into him and he just never could last to get that 100, 101 mile per hour form into the bullpen. And, and their attempts to draft college relievers have not really panned out. Uh, and so they've had to sign guys. They've had to like, you know, hope for adequacy from guys like Jose Ruiz, but haven't really been that kind of factory for uh, high octane arms the way the Rays are. So, I, you know, that's something I pay attention to in terms of like, how do they, how do they make a new closer every year and then trade them off for somebody who's of more use and then replace mm-hmm. them with a different closer and, and repeat that cycle. Whereas the White Sox have to sink so much trade capital into solving their high leverage relief situation. So that's what makes them interesting. I think, you know, it's, it also makes them frustrating for casual fans or fans who want to get attached to players, uh, you know, in the uh, St. Petersburg area that just can never feel confident about uh, buying a Jersey because that Jersey could be outdated really quickly. Like it's hard to get fired up for a front office uh, as much as they might be the envy of the league in a lot of respects. Like it just, you, you go to the game to watch the players and it's just like, Oh, that's they're winning games four to three in a really neat way. It's like, that doesn't quite capture the excitement and the marketing capabilities that we, you know, you're not going to see any Tampa Bay Rays at the top of a best-selling Jersey list. So I think that's the, uh, that's a drawback, but I think, you know, as you know, we've seen the league uh, copy so many of their ideas and hire so many of their front office employees that uh, it does seem like, you know, teams with more resources can borrow some of their ideas without being so, I guess, off-putting about just how cold some of their decision-making may be in terms of appealing to fans who want to like players. What's interesting about the White Sox start of this season is that we're starting to see some of the high-profile prospects make their debuts. We saw Spencer Torkelson, and the White Sox had no problem getting Torkelson out. We saw Julio Rodriguez, who didn't do much damage against the White Sox. Jared Kelnick, he hit that two-run homer in the third game of the series on uh, today as far as Thursday, and that gave the Mariners the lead, and that was his damage. So we saw one big moment from one of the two big prospects the Seattle Mariners have. But with the Rays, they may have the prospect in Wander Franco. And and we saw Franco last year and he had a pretty instant positive impact on the Tampa Bay Rays. He signs that huge contract to stay with the Rays. And I know you mentioned it's hard to buy a Jersey. If you're a Rays fan, I am sure Wander Franco's Jersey is a very good seller 
uh, for the Tampa Bay Rays because he's going to be sticking around with the Rays, and we'll see how long the Rays stick around in St. Petersburg. But that's what makes the Rays so interesting to me because we saw Randy Rosarena, and he's had you know already a terrific start to his career with the Rays, and he had that amazing postseason in 2020. But we have been hearing about Wander Franco since he was 15 years old as being the next big thing. And right now, Jim, he has not disappointed at all. And I'm really looking forward to, especially with the pitching probables for the White Sox, on how Franco does against Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech. You got a lot of firepower there. These guys are going to be amped up because they're going to be pitching in front of sold-out crowds. They're sold-out home crowds. And here comes Franco, one of the most talked-about prospects, now facing these White Sox pitchers that have elite stuff. How does Franco do against Cease and Kopech, who these guys did not have a problem at all against Spencer Torkelson. That's what makes the Rays this year really interesting to see and just how far Wander Franco can carry this team. Yeah, I think, you know, watching Torkelson come up and not get his first hit against the White Sox, that was that was nice. Like, I enjoyed that. <laughs> um, getting to see, oh, what's this guy all about, but not having, like, the immediate success that makes me think, like, oh, he's going to be a problem. Like, yeah. he will be probably at some point, but just it's nice having the – you know, after so many years of watching White Sox prospects not quite hit the ground running in scuffle, like, you know, just it, I, I don't mind seeing talented players need to, to figure it out. But I think I, I think Franco could be one of those players like when you watch the way the Yankees talked about Vlad Guerrero's uh, uh, three homer performance and just mm-hmm. Garrett Cole tipping his hat and Aaron judge saying like, I, I would have rather watched that on TV than in person, like just the the respect they commands like. I think that's one of my favorite things about baseball. Like when somebody is so talented that just, uh, you know, you, you see like the pitcher throw his hat at a guy, like just getting mad, like the somebody's so good that they can't help, but like, you, you know, nobody can talk around it. Nobody can say like, uh, you know, so-and-so is overrated or, or, you know, nobody can say like, well, he's cheating or playing the game the wrong way. It's just like, he's good. And it sucks that he's that good, but it's also like, it'll be one of those players that you can say that you saw, you know, as you get older, when that player retires and just be like, I saw like, you know, when, when the, the game in Anaheim where Mike Trout hit the grand slam off Chris Hill, like I saw that in person. I was very displeased to have watched it in real time, but like after he hit it and seen the crowd go nuts, like I'm happy that like when Mike Trout's in the hall of fame, I could say like, <laughs> yeah, I saw him. I saw him summon those powers and it was, it was cool. <laughs> So I can respect like a talent like uh, Franco. So it's the kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind if it takes him a while to round up to it, but I always think it's like a little bit disappointing when somebody that good doesn't quite put it all together for one reason or another. So I hope in in this case, it's talent a little bit delayed, but uh, not denied. But I think with the Rays, like there's a lot of uh, hot and cold going on, like a lot of top heavy performances, Choi and and Lau and, and Franco, but then some other guys who aren't, quite hacking it. So I think, you know, maybe if you can mitigate the damage uh, of somebody like him and Lau, that might be one way to work around it to where you can still get those moments like, oh, I saw him do something cool, but ultimately it doesn't quite weigh into the, the the final score. Yeah. And again, Franco is off to a terrific start. 11 for 29, a 379 batting average coming up this weekend against the Chicago White Sox. And the White Sox pitching probables for this series, Friday to April 15th, please note, This is the Apple TV broadcast. This will not be on NBC Sports Chicago, and it is not available 
on MLB.tv. You need to have Apple TV or at least the app on your smart TV on your smart devices. No, you do not need to have an Apple TV subscription to watch this game between the White Sox and Rays, but for future broadcasts on Apple TV, you will need to do so. First pitch is going to be at 6.10 p.m. Central Time. Dylan Cease will be on the mound for the Chicago White Sox. Saturday, April 16th at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, it'll be Michael Kopech. And Sunday, Easter Sunday, April 17th at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, Vince Velasquez will make his second start for the White Sox. Jim, looking at the pitching problems here, Dylan Cease always does well against the Detroit Tigers. So I think we could have chalked that up to an expected type of performance from Dylan Cease. But in his second start, and even the second start from Michael Kopech as well, what do you think the pitch limit is going to be? Are we going to see an increase in the amount of pitches that they're thrown, or is this going to be a repeat of their first start? I think there can be an increase as long as there isn't like a, a super high stress inning. Like I think if Cease or Kopech throws a – 35 pitch inning, like somewhere along the lines that may ultimately put a cap on what they can do, regardless of, you know, whether they, they find a stride later in the game or whether they were cruising for the first two. Um, I, I could, I think there could be just more of a high stress avoidance rather than a uh, total pitch count limit. Uh, but given the way he's through last time, like he could probably go six with that kind of effort that he showed uh, Kopech. I think, you know, maybe, he might be one inning behind or like maybe, I don't know, 15 pitches behind in terms of a average, uh, evenly distributed uh, workload. Um, but I think with both, I think they showed enough to where like they feel like they can uh, proceed with the next step. I think the one thing I'm watching with Kopech is just, you know, we're still learning what he looks like in terms of fastball velocity as a starter. So I'm just curious what his, you know, top end is going to be, uh, how his velocity, um, stamina is going to look like, cause he is dipping down towards 93 at the end. Like is, is that something to watch or the velocity charts going to be something to hover on as you go to the third and fourth innings, or is it going to be a little bit more in start durability to where like he's throwing 95 all the way through rather than like some kind of, you know, early topping out at 98 and then sliding downwards. Uh, that's, that's something that's just unknown and hard to know. Like if he does, you know, hit 97 early and then he's throwing 93 in the fourth, does that mean injury or altered mechanics? Or is that just a feature of a guy learning how to start again? Like that's, uh, something I'm, I'm watching a little bit through my fingers. Like, you know, it's kind of like, I don't want to watch Statcast right now. Uh, <laughs> but Worth paying attention to, I think, not not fixating on it too much, but at least mm -hmm. having it in mind should the results not look great. Like if he comes out of the gate throwing 94, then I think you might look at the last 20 pitches of his previous outing and say, oh, that might have meant something more than we thought. But just it, we're all learning right now, just kind of taking you know, the, the information has been so scant on him last few years that we're, we're just kind of building data right now. And again, Friday is Jackie Robinson Day. So both teams will be wearing number 42 all game long. And it's always a very fun night to see that across Major League Baseball uh, to add to some of the excitement of a Friday night game at Guarantee Rate Field on the south side. And the weather should look good. We have a cold front moving into Chicago, so it'll be a little chillier, especially 
for Easter Sunday as well as the temperatures will be in the 40s for first pitch for that game. So if you are attending any of these games at home over the weekend, and there's a lot of you, make sure you definitely bring a hoodie or a jacket. It is not going to be that warm for the first home weekend series for the Chicago White Sox in 2022. And we will be recapping that series between the White Sox and Rays on Monday Sox Machine podcast. But before we sign off in this episode of Sox Machine Live, Jim, I wanted to ask for your thoughts, as this is by far the most popular topic when it comes to Major League Baseball. Clayton Kershaw was on the verge of one of his best performances of his Hall of Fame career. And I think it's safe to say that Clayton Kershaw has got a Hall of Fame career. He last threw a no-hitter in 2014. And in his first start in Minneapolis against the Twins, 80 pitches in, he's got 13 strikeouts and a perfect game through seven innings. And Dave Roberts pulled Kershaw out of the game because of workload. And it's all about the long-term goal of winning another world championship rather than individual glory. But this is Clayton Kershaw. There's very few perfect games in Major League Baseball history. Was that the right move in your eyes? I don't know if there is a right move or hmm. a wrong move. I think both sides of the bait are, you know, given the pitch count was low, given it wasn't like an Edwin Jackson type, you would need 150 pitches to see it all the way through. You could have maybe thrown a Maddox where just, you know, getting in under the wire under 100. But uh, if Kershaw were upset, I think I might have been more like, you know, Roberts was too cautious. Um, but given that he accepted the move, that he was for it, that he supported the move, like this is a, a guy's career. This, you know, Kershaw has a ring, but he also, you know, he's working on other things. He's working on being their first team in October because his his track record there is a little bit sketchy for what's otherwise pretty much an impeccable, you know, Hall of Fame resume, as you said. So there are there are priorities of balance, but it is a kind of situation like where you know we've seen perfect games. We've been lucky enough to see it with Mark Burley mm-hmm. and like, like uh, Philip Umber, you know, throwing theirs. Like you remember it, you remember seeing it. If you're lucky to be there in person, or uh, you know, leaving work early or taking a long lunch to make sure you could see it all the way through, or you know, engineering it somehow to learn how it's going on and 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 just. Uh, having fond memories of it. Like it is, it is a loss. I, I think it is a missed opportunity, but I think, you know, just given the, the spring given, you know, Kershaw's history of both being recently injured and uh, you know, having a weird ramp up to his season, like it's, it's hard to fault Roberts. So I could see it going either way. If they let him go eight, if they let him go 110 pitches and then he, you know, give him the next two starts off to just kind of recover. Like, I could have seen it every way being reasonable given the stakes and how well he was pitching. But uh, overall, uh, when you look at, you know, having a good full October and a normal season is basically the only thing missing from his resume that I can see him wanting to be around for it and wanting to prioritize that. And uh, yeah, so I, th- I think I'm fine with it. Where do you stand? It, I think you said it perfectly that, there's really no right answer to this question. And it's been a very heated debate. I've even some, I've seen some people have to take Jim that shoulder problems are temporary, but perfect games last forever. 
And uh, having seen some guys with uh, shoulder injuries try to lift their arms up later in life, I think yeah. those are forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least exactly. Them are. So exactly. Yeah. It, I, it, it is unfortunate. And we saw this with San Diego, right? You Darvish and Sean and I have got no hitters going to the sixth inning. Do you chase for individual glory in the first start of the season? And we saw Carlos Rodon as this is the one year anniversary of Rodon throwing his no hitter uh, while we recording this episode. And that was the second start of the season. Maybe it was a bit careless if the white Sox are looking at the long-term picture. However, at that time, we didn't know what Carlos Rodon had left in the tank. We were still skeptical that he could be a dependable fit starter for the White Sox. So they're looking at Rodon's situation. I would say that was the right move by Tony the Russa because this may be the only opportunity that Carlos Rodon ever has of achieving something so great. And he was one hit batter, one slider hitting the top of the foot Literal of Roberto Perez. Slider. Yeah. Uh, from having his own perfect game. And I was in attendance it was a COVID crowd. We were all in our pods, but that was cool to see in person. But with Kershaw, it's weird to say, but he doesn't need the perfect game to make it into the Hall of Fame. And the Dodgers are going to need him in October if they want to win another World Series. And I think Kershaw has said everything correctly to the media since he refuses to throw Dave Roberts under the bus. He understands the fans frustration and some of the media's frustration as well of not chasing for that glory. But I also think looking at Kershaw's perspective is that my last simulated game, I threw 75 pitches. I was not ramped up and ready physically to throw a hundred plus pitches. If I go into the eighth inning and give up a hit. And like you said, Jim, I have to go on the injured list because I have a serious injury again and I'm out two or three months. It may not be worth it for me to have that. Instead, I'll take my 80 pitches. I'll take my seven scoreless innings, not allowing a walk or hit and 13 strikeouts. I mean, Clayton Kershaw, that's like prime Clayton Kershaw type of performance against the Minnesota twins. And if that's the version of Kershaw, the Dodgers have, I mean, good luck everyone in the national league West try to chase down that team. It's a yeah. special moment. It could have been a greater moment, but ultimately I don't blame Dave Roberts and I do not blame the Los Angeles Dodgers or even Clayton Kershaw. If they are not looking at the individual glory and instead looking at the long-term picture and hoping that not pushing it so hard in April allows Kershaw to maybe duplicate this performance in October. Yeah, Clayton Kershaw is one of those uh, you know, pitchers or players that's talking about that just, you know, uh, you're happy to have seen in person and, and you know, has delivered so regularly that uh, people are going to be talking about a perfect game or not. Like, I, the only time I've been to Petco in San Diego, my brother was stationed out there, went to visit him, Padres were home playing the Dodgers, like Clayton Kershaw starting night. All right, let's go. So we got some tickets for the right field corner and uh, – just watched him throw seven shadow innings, strike out 10 Dodgers won easily had some good beers. So it's like, it's nice to like, you know, show up to a park for a guy you want to see. And that guy is exactly how you want to, uh, uh, you know, relay his memory as you know, when he retires and he's, uh, more, uh, 
more legend than person, I think that's uh, uh, that's one of those performances I'll remember just uh, as a very satisfying ballpark experience. So yeah, for other pitchers, I think you know, like Philip Umber, given what happened to him mm-hmm. after his, uh, you know, all the injury issues he had before his perfect game and how quickly his career unraveled afterwards. Like he had a moment, he had a fleeting window to capitalize on when things are going well and he did it. So we will, recall him fondly because of that. Uh, and, and maybe like Carlos Rodon, same thing. Like we didn't know Rodon would finish fifth in the Cy Young, <laughs> given the, uh, uh, you know, his, his robust injury history. Like we were hoping to get through the first half. Okay. Uh, so, you know, when he was chasing that uh, perfect game or in, in the end, beginning no hit irresponsibly, like, you know, without a, a gross pitch count, anything out of control, like sure, go for it. Uh, uh, get that moment, but yeah, Kershaw, you know, three Cy Youngs, an MVP, uh, World Series ring. Uh, he's really just kind of putting the, uh, I, I guess, a perfect game would have been a finer point on his career, but like he's really just more about 200 wins, uh, better postseason record. Like he's he's more about just kind of big picture uh, polishing right now to where like yeah, just perfect game. He, and also he might have opportunities later. Like if he's throwing like this, like. It, it, you can't rule them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good points. Good points. We'll see if we're going to have any no-hitters. I mean, again, the Padres had a couple flirting with the no-hitter. Kershaw, excellent through seven innings against the Minnesota Twins, flirting with the perfect game. Maybe we'll see a no-hitter before the end of the month. We certainly saw a lot of no-hitters in a bunch at the beginning of 2021. Maybe we'll see those special moments, and maybe one of those special moments would be with the Chicago White Sox and maybe even this weekend, fingers crossed. But that will do it for this episode of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening and watching to this episode. And you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. If you are watching this and you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, or if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, you can subscribe to the Sox Machine YouTube channel at youtube.com slash socks machine and you can listen to this episode wherever you subscribe to podcasts such as spotify and apple podcasts if you are new to socks machine or have been a long time lurker of socks machine think about helping support us at patreon.com slash socks machine we are currently at 599 patreon supporters so the next one is going to be our 600th patreon supporter which is a huge deal to us so thank you guys so much for your continued support And if you haven't heard of this offer, you get exclusive content from us. You get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, you get the first opportunity to acquire that swag. We have monthly plans starting at just $2 a month and you save with an annual subscription. So if you're interested and you want more from us, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine and sign up today. The Socks Machine Podcast and Socks Machine Live is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. 
The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com